Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This morning, New York Congressman and serial fabulist George Santos surrendered himself into federal custody. Congressman Santos is now out on bail, but he has been charged with 13 felonies. And if convicted, he could face up to 20 years in prison. And that's just for the most serious felonies. Which ones are the most serious felonies, you ask? Congressman Santos has had so many scandals, it would be genuinely difficult to guess which ones we're talking about here. This isn't about Mr. Santos inventing literally his entire resume. It is not even about him pretending that he produced the Broadway show Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, which was, let's just say what it is. It was a weird lie. It's not even about him pretending he was a champion college volleyball player, which was also a very weird lie, or that his mother was in the South Tower on 9-11. It is not even about Congressman Santos allegedly stealing $3,000 from a disabled homeless veteran's dying dog's GoFundMe although the FBI is reportedly looking into that one, too. Now, today's charges are all about how Congressman Santos made his money. During his first run for Congress in 2020, Santos reported a salary of $55,000 a year. By 2022, Santos had reported a salary of $750,000 a year, plus a million dollars in dividends. He'd somehow made so much money in those two years that Santos was able to loan his own campaign more than $700,000. So where did all that money come from? Well, prosecutors allege that a certain chunk of Santos's newfound wealth came from unemployment assistance. Despite supposedly having this incredibly lucrative job, Mr. Santos allegedly applied for and received nearly $25,000 in COVID unemployment benefits which were meant to help people who are out of work and having a tough time during a deadly pandemic. So class act, Mr. Congressman. But that's still just 25 grand out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. As it concerns that bigger pot of money, well, the feds have a much bigger allegation. Prosecutors allege that Mr. Santos devised and executed a scheme to defraud campaign donors through what appears to be a shell company, a shell company that was controlled by something called the DeVolder Organization. Now, to understand the DeVolder Organization entirely, we have to back up just a little bit. Of all the jobs that Congressman Santos claims to have had, the one that we know is real was his work for a group called Harbor City Capital. That company is notable mainly because the SEC alleges Harbor City Capital was, quote, a fraudulent Ponzi scheme that victimized hundreds of investors across the United States. Weeks after that alleged Ponzi scheme got in trouble with the SEC, wouldn't you know it, but Mr. Santos incorporated a new organization called, drumroll please, the DeVolder Organization. In Santos's own words, the DeVolder Organization was an effort to help all the people who were left adrift at that alleged Ponzi scheme that he was a part of, Harbor City Capital. In other words, Santos made this new organization as a way to help find new jobs for the people who were part of the old alleged Ponzi scheme. And now federal prosecutors are alleging that the new organization, DeVolder, that was created from the ashes of an old fraud, 
the new organization also committed fraud. Who would have guessed? Prosecutors allege that DeVolder organization controlled a political fund. And that political fund was basically one big grift. Mr. Santos convinced donors that he needed money for TV ads for his congressional campaign. And he told them they could donate unlimited amounts of money to that political fund, the one controlled by DeVolder, to get those ads on the air. Prosecutors allege that once donors sent in their money, it would just get deposited into bank accounts controlled by George Santos himself. And that Santos used that money for things like, quote, luxury designer clothing and credit card payments, which the last time we checked is not ads for a congressional campaign. Today, Congressman Santos pleaded not guilty to the charges, and he denied all of these allegations. The reality is, is it's a witch hunt. It's a witch hunt. That was George Santos after posting bail this afternoon. If this all feels very Trumpy to you, there is a very good reason for that. One of the big questions here, after all, is when Republicans will decide this is all too much and just ditch these guys. Yesterday, former President Trump was literally held liable in court for sexual abuse and defamation. But even that does not appear to be a red line for most Republicans in Congress. And while House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy hasn't kicked Congressman Santos out of his conference or called on him to resign, we did finally see some reaction from him today. Speaker McCarthy told CNN that he will not support George Santos for re-election. The speaker has no issues with George Santos right now because right now he needs George Santos's vote. But next year, next year, Congressman Santos is on his own. You better believe it. But until then, George Santos is still in the Republican conference. He's still a reliable vote and he is still a necessary inconvenience to remain in power. But there is another reason why Congressman Santos's indictment today feels Trumpy. It's the legal end of things. Because the thing that could amount to the most actual prison time for Congressman Santos is wire fraud. If there is one thing that is super cut and dry for prosecutors, it is the act of using wire communication to commit a crime across state lines. We learned last month that special counsel Jack Smith's office is looking at Trump for doing an eerily similar thing to Congressman Santos. Prosecutors are trying to determine whether Mr. Trump and his aides violated federal wire fraud statutes as they raised as much as $250 million through a political action committee by saying they needed the money to fight to reverse election fraud, even though they had been told repeatedly that there was no evidence to back up those fraud claims. So prosecutors right now are alleging Mr. Santos defrauded donors, claiming they were giving money to support his campaign when really the cash was allegedly just going into George Santos's own bank account. And they are saying that Mr. Santos did that via email across state lines, which could be wire fraud. And Jack Smith's office is also investigating Trump for potentially defrauding voters, using false claims about election fraud to convince them to donate via email across state lines, which could also be wire fraud. And by the way, that one would be defrauding to the tune of $250 million, a quarter of a billion dollars. So as we watch George Santos's case play out, it is worth remembering that a lot of what he allegedly did is pretty similar to what Trump has reportedly done himself. It's not nearly on the same scale, but it could be prosecuted in the very same way. 
George Santos is accused of all these crimes that at the end of the day are about him lying to individuals and the public. Trump's legal trouble is that times 250 million. Trump's lie was the big lie, the conspiracy that the 2020 election was somehow stolen, that, among other things, led to an insurrection. Tonight at a town hall in New Hampshire, Trump was asked if he had any regrets about his actions on January 6th. He said that people were there that day, quote, because they thought the election was rigged and they were they were proud. They were there with a love in their heart. It was unbelievable. And it was a beautiful day. That's what he said to an audience that appeared to be mostly filled with Trump supporters. And then the former president was asked about his promise to pardon January 6 defendants. Will you pardon the January 6 rioters who were convicted of federal offenses? I am inclined to pardon many of them. I can't say for every single one because a couple of them, probably they got out of control. What they've done to these people, they've persecuted these people. And yeah, my my answer is I am most likely if I get in, I will most likely I would say it will be a large portion of them. You know, they did a very. And it'll be very early on. And they're living in hell right now. So when it comes to living in hell. And their policemen and their firemen and their soldiers and their carpenters and electricians and their great people. Many of them are just great people. Just great people. Joining us now is Maryland Democratic Congressman and a former member of the January 6th Committee, Congressman Jamie Raskin, and Mary McCord, visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and co-host of the podcast Prosecuting Donald Trump. Thank you both for being here. Um, Congressman, I just want to get your reaction to... The president's comments about January 6th being a beautiful day and the January 6th rioters being great people. Well, he told a pack of lies tonight about January 6th, uh, including the fairly new claim that somehow uh, he tried to make 10,000 soldiers or National uh, Guards uh, available to uh, defend the Capitol when, in fact, of course, he was— in hiding, essentially, for three hours while the violence unfolded and did nothing other than uh, further exacerbate the violence and enrage his followers by tweeting out that uh, Vice President Pence did not have the courage to do what needed to be done. But uh, he is now repeating these uh, promises to pardon the January 6th rioters. He makes no distinction uh, between violent insurrectionists and those who may have been convicted for nonviolent offenses. And he also said that he would conceivably pardon uh, the Proud Boys. He said he was uncertain about that, but obviously didn't want to commit to pardoning the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers at this point. So, look, I think that he is running on an explicitly authoritarian program. He is recycling the big lie in a very big way. Um, and um, the whole GOP, at least by the evidence of the Republicans in that room, seem to be wrapping themselves um, around the package of lies and propaganda and disinformation that he wants to run on. Yeah, despite the hour of propaganda, lies and disinformation that American audiences, those who tuned in, were subject to, Mary, the fact remains that the big lie was a lie and that the big lie was used to solicit money to the tune of $250 million by Trump affiliates, if you will. Jack Smith may be looking at that 
action to basically grift the American public with the big lie as evidence of wire fraud. And I wonder how exposed you think President Trump is, given the fact that he is out there minutes ago, again, talking about the big lie that he used to fundraise. Right. You know, this is a, a new part of the investigation that we just learned about, I guess, like a few weeks ago. And as you said at the top of the hour, Alex, this is sort of wire fraud is the bread and butter of a federal prosecutor. And the investigation that Jack Smith is is doing does look, uh, you know, very similar to what we've just seen uh, charges brought against George Santos for in record time, I'll say. I mean, that investigation began, I think, right after the election, and already we have in, an indictment with 13 charges against George Santos. So, so with respect to Trump, we're not only talking about soliciting donations based on a lie about election fraud, but potentially also lying about how that money was going to be used, which might actually be easier to prove than soliciting based on a lie about election fraud. Because he could say, oh, like so many have done, like George Sanho has done, I was exaggerating. I was, you know, in campaign mode. Uh, I was, um, uh, you know, soliciting based on exaggeration, which sometimes politicians do. But there were also potential lies about what that money was going to be used for. One, that it was going to be put explicitly in an election fraud fund to be used for bringing uh challenges against the election, for recounts, for audits, and then the second being that it was actually going to be used for those things. And there's no evidence that I'm aware of that that fund was created or that the money was actually used for recounts and challenges and audits. So there's a number of bases where the fraud might have occurred uh, that could be the basis for wire fraud. Connecting well, it to Trump will depend on, of course, what he knew about that scheme to um, solicit these contributions. Do you think that helps explain his willful denial of reality that multiple investigations, some, you know, from his own officials, reveal the 2020 election to be free of fraud? I mean, do you think that is potentially why he keeps beyond the ego, beyond the sort of political expediency of insisting he's not a loser? Do you think there's a legal aspect to all of this? He is trying to basically CYA? Well, I, I do think, I think, you know, he's a complicated uh, individual and I would not want to spend any time in his brain, but I think it could be multiple things. I think he cannot stand being a loser. He can't stand admitting he lost. But I think at this point, and you heard it, you know, I was in the green room watching that town hall that you've been talking about. You heard it there, him doubling down on there being a rigged election, because I think in his mind, part of his defense is, this is what I truly believed. I truly believed it was rigged. And yes, I had various advisors told, telling me it wasn't, but I had other people who were <clears throat> agreeing me, with me that it was. And so, you know, he, he was corrected. He was attempted to be corrected several times tonight, but he stuck, he stuck with it. And I think he's got multiple reasons that he's doing that. Yeah. Um, Congressman, I'm not going to comment on the utility of allowing President Trump a platform to broadcast over and over again lies that have been debunked over and over again. Uh, but I do want to get your thoughts on what the president said about the vice president, which you alluded to at the beginning of our show, um, and whether or not he owed Mike Pence an apology. I think we have a clip of that, if we could roll that now. Right. One person who was at the hey, Capitol that day, as you know, was your vice president, Mike Pence, who says that you endangered his life on that day. I don't Do think he feel, was in any danger. Mr. President, 
Do you feel that you owe him an apology? No, because he did something wrong. He should have put the votes back to the state legislatures, and I think we would have had a different outcome. I really do. Um, Congressman, your thoughts on that, especially in light of the fact that Mike Pence has now testified uh, against Donald against Donald Trump to federal investigators. Well, victim denigration is a way of life for bullies, and it's certainly a way of life for Donald Trump. He did it with um, Ms. Carroll this evening, where he said, what kind of woman goes into a dressing room with a man uh, in New York? And then he did it with Mike Pence, saying he was wrong. It was his fault. The mob was essentially on the right side. The mob that I heard chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. And he has never done anything to apologize to Mike Pence uh, or— He's never really done anything other than to try to excuse and apologize for the violence. But this was just a fraction of the lies that he was telling tonight. For example, he said that under Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court guaranteed that you could have an abortion up to the ninth month. Anybody who knows anything about Roe versus Wade knows that it's the trimester framework. It's the woman's choice in the first trimester. There can be some regulation in the interests of uh, maternal health in the second trimester. And in the third trimester, the procedure can be banned completely, which it was in uh, most of the country. So he was just lying about that and refusing to answer the question of whether or not he would uh, sign a federal abortion ban, which, of course, he would. He was lying about China and his approach on COVID-19. He defended General Xi and the Chinese Communist Party more than two dozen different times, talking about how wonderful Xi's leadership was and how he was in such close contact with them about COVID-19. And now he's trying to claim he was some kind of whistleblower about uh, China. But all of that is to cover up for his own murderous recklessness in terms of managing COVID-19 with his own COVID advisor, Deborah Burke, saying that we lost at least 140 40 or 50,000 people because of the decisions that were made by his administration. So I thought it was a shameful and disgraceful thing to see, but I'm afraid that it's just an omen of what is to come. Oh, and by the way, he also refused to stand up for Ukraine against Russia's filthy, bloody imperialist aggression against a democratic society, uh, trying to equate Russia and Ukraine, as if, you know, it's like equating the aggressors in World War II with the victim nations. Uh, And he refused to say that he would continue to arm uh, and defend the democratic resistance in Ukraine against Russia's invasion, which is just scandalous and outrageous. And in that case, he said, well, he doesn't believe in winning and losing, which was certainly the first time I ever uh, heard him say that before, and that when he gets into office, the war would be over in 24 hours. And we've heard a lot of promises like that before. But I don't think he's going to get back into office because I think the vast majority of the country understands he's an absolute liar and a con man. And now he has been found by a jury of his peers also to be a sexual abuser and a defamer of women. Yeah. I mean, the title, the hurricane of lies is almost difficult to annotate. You did an admirable job, Congressman. Mary, before we go, I, I you know, there is Trump's um, web of lies in which he exists. And then there is reality. And reality is what dictates our uh, our, our judicial system. And I, the reality is Trump may be thinking he's in a position to pardon Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. But it seems like Jack Smith may be weighing seditious conspiracy charges for Donald Trump himself. Do you think that's at all likely? I mean, I certainly think it's on the table. And if there's evidence to uh, by 
for which Jack Smith believes he can prove every element of seditious conspiracy beyond a reasonable doubt, I think that they will strongly consider bringing that charge. Just like, you know, one of the criminal referrals from uh, Congressmember Raskin and the House Select Committee was for, you know, aiding, giving aid and comfort to an insurrection, which, again, that has not been charged yet with respect to any of the other January 6th or any of the January 6th rioters. But I think everything is on the table. It's all going to depend on what the evidence is to support it. I don't think they're going to take risks and bring any charges that they that they think are dubious in terms of the ability to be proved. First of all, that would be against Department of Justice policy, but they don't want to take risk. But I do think they will they will they will not hesitate to bring charges if they think they've got the evidence. And, you know, that's why this has gone on as long as that it's gone on. That's why we're seeing so many people go into that grand jury that are that are very high level advisors to the former president, including, of course, Mike Pence, to see if they can make those connections to bring uh, all the charges that that, you know, they feel they can prove and that should be brought. Proud Boys are going to jail. Oath Keepers going to jail. Mike Pence has testified against Donald Trump. Donald Trump is potentially looking at a summer of criminal indictments. He may be living in his universe, but the truth is out there and coming for him. Congressman Raskin, Mary McCord, thanks to both of you for making time tonight. We have a lot more to get to this evening, including the latest on the Fulton County investigation into efforts to overturn the election and how one of the fake electors is now proclaiming his own innocence while pointing a finger at Trump's lawyers. But first, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will be joining me live, and we have so very much to talk about. She is here, coming up next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Tonight, former president and current presidential candidate Donald Trump answered questions about the verdict that found him liable for sexual abuse and the defamation of writer E. Jean Carroll. CNN's Caitlin Collins asked Trump whether he believes the verdict will deter women from voting for him. Trump said no and then interrupted himself to share something truly stomach-turning. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings him up and within minutes you're Playing hanky panky in a dressing room, okay? They found they that you did, sexually they found, abused her. No, no, what, say what they, they did. They said he didn't rape her. 
And did I didn't do anything else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know can, who I, this woman can I ask you, given your recounting, I don't your know version, who, and, and I tell you this. But Mr. President, are you ready? Can I, can I, and I can swear I ask on my children, which I never do. I have no idea who this woman. This is a fake story. I have no idea who the hell she's a Mr. whack President, job. You, you did not. tell in the hours since he was he was found in the hours since he found Trump liable for sexual abuse in the hours since he was found liable for sexual abuse and defamation Trump has not missed a chance to deny any of this he's even used the same sort of language that prompted this defamation case he still claims he doesn't know Eugene Carroll. He is still claiming her that she is a liar and she, he, the case against him is a witch hunt. And he did that all tonight, too, as a presidential candidate. And he did it in front of a room of Republican voters who laughed. Joining us now is Democratic New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, it's a real honor and a pleasure to have you here tonight. I'm sorry that this is what we have to be talking about um, Yesterday, when that verdict was read, I think a lot of people felt like there was real progress in American society for victims of sexual assault. Today, listening to the howls of laughter as the former president of the United States made fun of a woman that he was found criminally liable for sexually assaulting, to howls of laughter— uh, in the room, it felt like something far worse than backsliding or regression. I'm not sure what to call it. I wonder what you make of where we are as a culture. Well, you know, I think even yesterday, what we saw was the profound courage uh, and sacrifice that a survivor like Eugene Carroll uh, makes, and survivors across the country make, many who often go unrecognized in the courageous act of coming forward um, to tell their story of an assault. And I think what we saw tonight is a continued demonstration of the sacrifice that women and survivors of sexual abuse across the country of all genders experience and the sacrifices that they make in order to come forward and challenge power. And what we also saw tonight was the consequence of doing that. They sacrificed their anonymity, they sacrificed their safety, and they sacrifice all of this because we continue to live in a society where an overwhelming amount of structures allow this abuse to happen and find it permissible. Uh, you know, I, I know you said earlier that you will not comment on the platforming of um, such atrocious disinformation, but I would. I think it was a profoundly irresponsible decision. I don't think that it would I would be doing my job if I did not say that. Um, and what we saw tonight was a series of extremely irresponsible decisions that put a sexual abuse victim at risk, that put that person at risk in front of a national audience. And I could not have disagreed with it more. It was shameful. Um, I think a lot of people are going to echo those points in the coming hours and days. The, the behavior of the president was, um, which, you know, our expectations for it, I think, collectively are fairly low, uh, but he exceeded uh, even those low expectations. I, I have to ask you how you felt about and how you feel about the revisionism around January 6th. We have heard four months now that January 6th rioters, insurrectionists uh, there to steal an election are heroes, people who've been treated badly, people who deserve better conditions because they're being treated like, quote unquote, hell. The president, former president, echoed that and suggested he might pardon all many, if not all of them. You mm -hmm. survived January 6th. And I believe you, you said it felt like you were going to die. 
I think it's really important in this moment to champion the voices of victims. And as someone who is a victim that day, how does this all feel to you? How does this narrative feel to you? You know, I, I made a statement about two weeks ago. And in that statement, I stated that January 6th was just a dress rehearsal for some of these folks. And, and I believe that uh, the former president really echoed that sentiment tonight. Why else would you pardon people who perpetuated a terrorist attack on the United States Capitol, um, other than for reasons to support the person in a potential effort to do it again? We also saw that he refused tonight to say and commit that he would not only recognize the results of the 2020 election, but also refused outright to acknowledge any outcome and respect any outcome of a 2024 election. This is a profoundly dangerous moment. What we saw on January 6th was a dress rehearsal, because what we are seeing is is that being set as an example in state legislatures across the country, in the ability to really suspend democracy in states like Tennessee and Montana, where they are following the president's example, and they are committing truly unprecedented acts in attempts to either expel, censor, censor or generally uh, bar um, members, duly elected legislative, uh, legislative officials from entering their, their legislative bodies in which they have been elected to. This is a profoundly dangerous moment to see someone deny it, for him to also be platformed in the lie that he had somehow attempted um, to, to call the National Guard. I will tell you, we were barricaded in a room with the lights off and— that entire day, hearing the screams from outside our window, trying to figure out if we were going to break the glass to jump out, and if so, how would we not be recognized or, or killed on the street? Um, and we knew when the sun was setting that night and the National Guard had, had you know, there was no, no indication that help was coming. It was terrifying. But that would not hold—that won't even hold a candle— to what Donald Trump is capable of. He was stopped on January 6th. Let's remember that. He was stopped from what he ultimately wanted to do. And he repeated that tonight. He said what should have happened was that Mike Pence should have overturned the election. That is what he said tonight. For as bad as January 6th is, I believe that the president would—the uh, former president, former President Trump, would not— would, would not have qualms about going further without a shadow of a doubt. You know, it's, it's, I think it's hard for us to grapple with the future that Trump has sort of outlined for the Republican Party, if not the country, what he would like to see in a 2024 election. But it's very certain that Trump has created a model for a new politician. And I have to ask you about George Santos, because mm -hmm. George Santos has not called for an insurrection. But I think mm -hmm. Trump established this precedent that you can just lie with impunity and you're never going to have to pay a price. Now, he may end up paying a price. It certainly seems like he will pay a price. But George Santos seems to have learned a lesson at the knee of Donald Trump, which is that the truth doesn't matter. What is his future in Congress? What do you think can and should happen? He's part of the New York delegation. Can you give us any insight into how it is that this person is still acting, emphasis on the word acting, as an elected representative? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, your point about Donald Trump setting a model is a very astute one. Even what we saw today and yesterday, after yesterday's announcements of um, of, of these charges and these counts this morning, the, the counts and the indictment being unsealed, 13 counts of criminal activity varying the spectrum of, of different kinds of offenses, George Santos publicly declared it a witch hunt. He went on Twitter and decided to take wholesale a page out of Donald Trump's uh, book and decide to attack the courts, decide to attack a potential investigation, claim uh, political uh, claim, you know, that that his breaking of the law and the acknowledgement of that and that these indictments of that uh, could be for could be a political um, persecution, an act of political persecution. I mean, all of this is truly cut from the cloth of former President Trump. And it is not uh, it's not a coincidence whatsoever. We are seeing this, that any semblance of accountability is deemed a witch hunt. And that attack of the truth, that attack on our institutions, those attacks on our courts, the attacks on any semblance of of the structures and the rules and the guides that we all, each one of us as society would live up to, that in and of itself is the game to attack any narrative or any fact that inconveniences you as biased and the, and the facts that favor you as being the capital T truth is the very definition and, and cuts at the very core of Trumpism. And it is what leads to cults of personality. It is how you condition your followers to not question uh, any set of facts that may cast you in a negative light. I mean, it is, it, it is a very serious moment that we all should take very, very seriously. But as, uh, you know, in terms of his future, he should resign. But I don't think he will, just like President Trump. Uh, I don't think that there's any amount of pressure that would lead an individual like that to withdraw unless, of course, they became uh, in—unless they were in custody, frankly. That's the new—that's the new bar. A democracy if you can keep it. Some days, some moments, these years, it's not sure whether we can actually keep it. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, really a pleasure to have you on the show tonight. Thanks for your thoughts. Of course. Thank you. Still to come this evening, despite Trump losing Georgia in 2020 by about 12,000 votes, 16 fake electors certified their state's vote for Trump anyway. About half of them have now gotten immunity deals. But one of the ones who didn't get an immunity deal is now arguing that if anything they did was illegal, look to Trump's own legal team. We'll talk about that just ahead. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents 
Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. It has been a pretty busy week, so it is totally okay if you miss this little headline here. Quote, Georgia GOP chairman says he was just following orders from Trump, law Trump lawyers. That GOP chairman is David Schaefer. And he's the man you see right here leading the fake elector meeting in Georgia on December 14th of 2020. To Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, who is investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the presidential election in Georgia, to Fonnie Willis, Mr. Schaefer is key. He has been singled out by the judge overseeing this case for the unique role he played on the day those fake electors met. And when Fonnie Willis offered immunity to a group of fake electors in exchange for collaboration, well, Mr. Schaefer was reportedly not included in that group. Faced with this reality, Schaefer's legal team sent a letter to D.A. Willis, one that was obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a letter trying to ward off an indictment against Mr. Schaefer. The lawyer's argument is that everything Mr. Schaefer did was based on legal advice provided by Trump lawyers. Quote, every action by Mr. Schaefer as a presidential elector, nominee, or contingent elector, that's what they're calling the fake electors, contingent electors, Every action was specifically undertaken in conformity with and reliance upon the repeated and detailed advice of legal counsel. To prove their point, they attached this email from a Trump lawyer named Alex Kaufman. In it, Mr. Kaufman tells David Schaefer it is imperative that Mr. Schaefer carry out that fake elector meeting. Quote, David, I'm reconfirming the importance and our collective advice that our slate of delegates— again, the fake electors, that they meet on December 14th and cast their ballots in favor of President Trump. I believe that this is still the most conservative course of action to preserve the best chance for Georgia to ultimately support the president's reelection. So that's, in case you missed it, Team Trump offering its collective advice that the fake electors meet and cast their ballots for Donald Trump on December 14th. And the lawyers add that if, if, the fake electors plot was somehow used in nefarious fashion to, I don't know, try and steal an election. Well, then Mr. Schaefer had no idea about any of that. Media reports have suggested that certain high level members of the then President Trump's legal team, including John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, may have developed subsequent plans to attempt to persuade Vice President Pence to count these contingent presidential electoral votes, fake elector votes, as the valid electoral votes. Mr. Schaefer was not involved in and had no such knowledge of any such plans. Mr. Schaefer was not involved. But you know who was? Team Trump. Joining us now is Gwen Keyes Fleming. She is a former district attorney for DeKalb County in Georgia. Gwen, it is great to see you in person on this night of nights. Thank you. Glad um, to be here. How does this letter ring to you? Is it plausible? I think it's it's one thing that the defense attorneys want to be able to get their story out early. Obviously, we've seen or at least heard from some of the grand jurors about what the, some of the testimony was. Uh, and so I think the defense team really wants to make sure they have an opportunity to get their story out, even though there are no indictments yeah. yet. Yes. So that is a little bit of an odd thing. Uh, or an indicator, maybe? Possibly. I mean, obviously, D.A. Willis has indicated she's looking to make an announcement somewhere between July 
July and September. And I think that will be the real game changer. But in terms of this particular letter, there are some key differences here that I think Fani or uh, members of her team will raise as to the case that they're relying on for this legal theory. It really uh, causes some concerns, I think. And in, in the sort of course of making their argument to, I don't know, the public, <laughs> just in case there's an indictment, there's a, I think the term is throwing people under the bus. Like there is literally, if anything bad happened with these fake elector votes involving Mike Pence and trying to play um, fuzzy math with the, the 2020 election, that's uh, Rudy Giuliani and uh, John Eastman's fault. I mean, does that ring, I mean, how, de- how damaging is that to Team Trump? The fact that someone who was part of this plot is saying, Look this way. I think it creates an interesting dynamic, right? And and sometimes it will let you know how desperate or how things are starting to shape out on the other side. But again, the prosecutor is always going to have to prove intent. So one of the reasons that it could have been uh, put out there this way is to demonstrate at least Schaefer did not believe he had the intent to violate the law. But again, I think there are some key differences here. The case in Hawaii that the whole legal theory is based on, there was an active court-ordered recount Mm -hmm. going on, which is what created the uncertainty. We did not have that in Georgia. The election was certified seven days before the electors gathered. The other thing is that it was only a difference of less than 200 votes. Here in 2020, we're talking about almost 12,000. 11,780. Exactly. I mean, just for people who aren't following along at home, there's so much legalese in all of this. The the idea that these Republican electors had to have these contingent, they had to make this contingent electors decision is because they were saying, in case this goes Trump's way, we need to basically have our ducks in a row. Because in Hawaii, in 1960, a similar situation played out, and they didn't, and look what happened. Right. But you're saying that there, are there is a huge differences between what happened in Hawaii in 1960 and what went down in Georgia in 2020. Exactly. And one of the other, two of the other key differences is, is that in the Hawaii situation, the governor signed off on the contingent electors, if that's what you want to call them. We call them fake electors we around call- here. <laughs> that did not happen in 2020. The other thing in Hawaii, the ceremony was public. Yes. And in 2020, there was at least testimony and evidence that they were trying to keep it hidden. Complete. Uh, I think complete secrecy is in one of the emails. Yes, exactly. David Schaefer does not have immunity. And there are eight fake electors, maybe nine, that have immunity. How meaningful are these immunity deals at this moment in time? I think they're critical because, again, those are the folks that were in the room. They were part of the backdoor conversations. They know who actually approached them and convinced them as to what the strategy would be, the intent of the strategy, how they were going to go forward. So that really gives the DA and her team that behind-the-scenes look at what people were thinking and what they were trying to achieve. Again, all of this was sent to the National archives uh, to be able to create uncertainty about the certification on January 6th. Um, Fonnie Willis is the prosecutor here, a a woman very much in the spotlight. Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia has signed a bill last week making official a law that creates a commission with powers to investigate, sanction or remove local prosecutors. Do you think she's worried about being able to see this case through? 
I don't think so. She has been a, a, a true professional for decades, certainly as long as I've known her. Uh, and I think she is continually, you can see it, she's being stepwise and deliberate about how she is building her case. She's not being rushed by all of the calls to try to bring an indictment or force her on a different timeline. And I think her team is really trying to put things together, which is why we're starting to hear about immunity deals, which is why the grand jury took so much time to listen to 75 witnesses. Yeah. Uh, and so again, she is doing what every good prosecutor should in terms of making sure she has her evidence and her law and her theories together before presenting it to a grand jury. And, and we'll wait and see what happens. Yeah, then. it's maybe why some people, <coughs> David Schaefer, are getting a little bit nervous and trying to preemptively establish their own narrative of what went on. The great Gwen Key Fleming, thank you so much for thank your you time for and wisdom me. this evening. Still to come tonight with the presumed Republican presidential frontrunner facing a litany of challenges like, oh, I don't know, multi-count criminal indictment and multi-million dollar civil judgment and multiple investigations. Is there such thing as traditional campaign politics? How Democrats will have to navigate these unprecedented times with Jen Psaki. That is next. The White House pool, the press pool, traveling back from New York City to Washington, D.C. this evening with President Joe Biden, reported that as they boarded Air Force One tonight, as former President Trump was participating in a CNN town hall in New Hampshire, televisions in the press cabin were set to MSNBC and not CNN. Hmm. Joining me now is my esteemed colleague, Jen Psaki, host of Inside with Jen Psaki. Jen, thank you for being here, my friend. It is. It seems not. Co- I mean, God Such bless everybody detail, who watches MSNBC. What's that? Yeah. Such a fun detail. Yeah, well, but I think it's an important <laughs> detail, too, right? Yes. Not just that, God bless everybody who's an MSNBC viewer, but that the White House d- does not want to deal with the headache that was or or perhaps further expose people to the nightmare that was President Trump spouting lies um, largely uncensored for 75 minutes. Is that, I mean, is that part of a campaign strategy? Talk to me about, there are no accidental decisions in something like that. What do you think that represents? That's true, and now I want to know more about that. But I would say, Alex, they don't, from the officials I still talk there, and I do stay in touch with a number of my former colleagues, they don't underestimate Trump. When there was a whole theory of, oh, Trump would be the easiest to run against, oh, Biden would clean his clock, that was not something I ever heard from a former colleague over there. They ran against him before, and he almost beat Biden. So they are not the ones, in my experience or from my engagements with them, who need a kind of a wake-up call. I will say— that given tonight was one of Trump's biggest returns to the national stage in a while, it should be a pretty big wake-up call for Democrats. I mean, he he lied about a lot of things. He said some crazy things like the country could default. He couldn't fit, could answer whether he would sign an abortion ban. Maybe he's on the side of Russia. Uh, he said lots of crazy things about January 6th. All of that is true. But he also had a command of that town hall meeting. Mm-hmm. And he has the evil charisma that people can hate, but it is happening. And hopefully it was a wake-up call for people out there about the reality that this guy is currently on the path to be the nominee and to maybe, likely, give the president a run for his money. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about the evil charisma. He was owning the room, and perhaps more disturbingly, the room was eating it up. Uh, well, that right? was the most disturbing—I mean, there was a lot of disturbing, but the laughing 
uh, when there were insane things, offensive things, things about Eugene Carroll being said, the laughing in the room, that was disturbing. Uh, you know, and the fact of the matter is, as we talk about the evil charisma, Trump's owning of the room, the audience lapping it up, this could be a summer of criminal indictments against the president. Mm -hmm. And as devastating as that should be for anybody who can, is concerned about the state of our democracy, it could also weirdly strengthen Trump. And I wonder for from amongst his people, from a Biden standpoint, what is your sense of how the White House talks about potential criminal yeah. indictments, how much they wade into that? Mm -hmm. Well, there is a tradition, as you know, Alex, of not weighing in on criminal indictments, and they're going to try to abide by that, is my bet. That becomes harder and probably less strategically to their advantage if there's an indictment on January 6th, on the Georgia case you were just talking about. These are fundamental values, defense of democracy. They're going to have to find a way to talk about it. They don't have to comment on the case, but it is about values, what you're trying to defend, and, and the contrast between the two candidates. So, yeah, I think it changes a little bit if there are other indictments on these other issues. Do you think President Biden is ready to go ham? <laughs> because it feels like he's going to need to do that. Ready to go ham? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm going to rephrase for those of you not following along at home. But is he ready to throw punches because it feels like Trump is in the ring? I think so. He did in 2020. I think he has to be. The other thing, though, to remember here is it's probably not going to be won or lost on fact-checking. It's probably going to be on fighting about the issues, abortion access, democracy, the economy that helped him win in the first time. So I think he's going to be very specific about where he throws his punches. We are going to—well, we'll see what— what station the, 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 the airplane televisions are tuned to in we'll the coming see. days. We'll see. Tune in. Stay tuned. Hopefully, see uh, MSNBC on Sunday at noon for your program. I hope so. Jen Psaki, my friend and colleague, <laughs> thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. That is our show for this evening. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.